You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Welcome to Unbiased Science, where we bring scientific method to the madness. We're your hosts, Dr. Jessica Steyer and Dr. Andrea Love. Last week, we talked about whether or not we can boost our immune systems. Uh, Andrea, did you want to give a little recap? Sure. I thought this was a really fun episode. Um, We started with a a primer about the immune system, um, the fact that it's composed of a lot of complicated um, pieces, including different types of organs, different types of vessels, different types of cells, and other sorts of components, and all of them work together in concert to be a functioning system in our body. Um, and the, the concept that we want our immune system to, um, be balanced, to be functional, but we don't want it to necessarily be stronger. Um, we talked a little bit about the fact that there are no magic bullets that you want healthy lifestyle habits. So sleep, um, vaccines, um, physical activity and a healthy diet are the best ways to ensure a healthy and functioning immune system. Um, but the fact that if we could actually boost our immune system, that could lead to detrimental effects and hyperreactivity. Um, and then we talked a little bit about some of the key micronutrients. We reviewed a lot of data about some of the studies that have been done to determine if Um, supplementation actually can improve function or prevent illness. Um, And then, of course, we dispelled some misconceptions about um, some of the supplements that we see on the market. Um, All in all, we were able to establish that while we want a balanced immune system, we want certain levels of key micronutrients, most of the supplements out there are not really doing anything and they're ultimately just expensive urine. <laughs> and Andrea, don't you love how we go into every episode saying, oh, we'll, we'll limit it to 30 minutes. <laughs> and yeah. then we could just cover so much content that it ends up being a little longer than, than we had hoped. But <laughs> um, sorry, guys. <laughs> so so this week, I'm, I'm totally geeking out over this week's topic, which is on research studies. How do they work? How are they designed? Um, I'm really excited about this topic, Andrea, because I feel like it, you know, it's so relevant to what you do and what I do. It really, you know, kind of it, it's relevant to population health as well as immunology. So um, I know we're really we're both really excited about this. Before we dive in. Let's do a little icebreaker. So I think my favorite thing to talk about after animals uh, is food. So that's uh, naturally the next topic we should talk about. So what is your favorite food? Oh, man, that's a tough decision. It really depends on what my mood is. But I am definitely a foodie. Um, I'm really into pan Asian food. I could probably eat sushi every single day. Um, You know, <laughs> you have to twist my arm about that. Um, but I'm also um, an ice cream junkie. <laughs> mm-hmm. Not the healthiest, um, you know, habit, but some reason psychologically, I can't end my day. I can't end my evening without a dessert. And my go to dessert is usually some sort of really decadent ice cream. I'm the same way. My grandma and I, my grandma always said this, and now I, I've adopted this as well. You have to always end on a sweet note. You know, you want yeah, to end your totally. day on a sweet note. <laughs> and like my brain will just keep like telling me to snack until I like shut it down with a dessert. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Same. So we're we're definitely on the same page there. Um, I'm a Brooklyn girl, so I have to say pizza. Um, I, I love a thin crust pizza plain slice. Fold it over, right? (laughs) Oh, that cracks in half when you fold it because the, you know, the crust, the crust is really um, thin and and crunchy and crispy, whatever the adjective, uh, the right adjective is. Um, It does not need toppings and it needs to be dripping with grease. Uh, Those (laughs) are the requirements. And then I feel like you'd also appreciate, uh, just as I do, a good charcuterie board with some meats and cheeses and and good bread. And I'm all about the salty and sweet. So I appreciate a little like honey or fruit preserves, you know, something on the side. So anyway, Uh, I could blue cheese go on and on. Like honey on it is really delicious. Oh my God. (laughs) And now Uh, I'm hungry. (laughs) I'm just going to say thanks, Andrea. Um, Okay. 
So do you want to kick us off? Sure. Yeah. So one of the reasons we wanted to talk today about how research studies work with you all is um, because everybody's really been seeing the scientific method happen in real time and in real life during the current COVID-19 pandemic. Um, And this, you know, these sorts of research studies are are going on all the time. But the challenge here is that we're releasing preprints. And preprints, as we talked about in an earlier episode, are research studies that have not been peer reviewed. Um, And these are being released at really rapid fire. And what that means is that some of these studies are not as robust, or they have some flaws in them. And so they're being grabbed on to by news outlets or the general public, and ultimately some of them are being misinterpreted. And so because of that, we thought it was time we really gave everybody a primer on how research studies work, what type of research studies there are, and what factors can guide whether a study is strong or if it's ultimately flawed. I'm going to hand it over to you, Jess. Yeah. And and Andrew, I'm going to need you to rein me in today because I am so excited to talk about this. I, you know, I'm, I'm over caffeinated and this is something, um, that I, that I've taught for many years now. So I've taught coursework on, um, research methodology and research design and epidemiology and all that good stuff. So please rein me in if I'm getting uh, a little too in the weeds, uh, as I did last week when I just randomly started talking about risk ratios and confidence intervals. Um, so let, Let's all just take a step back. Um, I want to set the stage and discuss the overarching goal of research, which is to establish something called the counterfactual. So this is a little oversimplified, but the structure of most research studies is that we're comparing two or more groups. So one group serves as the experimental group. Um, These are subjects that are exposed to something that we're interested in studying. And then we have another group which serves as our control. And the control group is meant to represent the experimental group without the exposure. So in an ideal world, the groups that we're comparing are going to be identical in every single way except for that one exposure that we're interested in studying. So let's uh, go back to the counterfactual. So the counterfactual is defined as what would have happened to the same individuals in our study at the same time had they not been exposed toward whatever it is that we're studying. By definition, the counterfactual is impossible to observe. It's an alternate universe. So let's talk about uh, an example here. So let's say I'm interested in studying the impact of smoking on lung cancer. A very, very basic, straightforward example. So ideally, I'm going to recruit a group of smokers. And in an ideal world, I would follow those those smokers over time to see whether or not they develop lung cancer. And I would then go back in time to an alternate universe and follow those very same people uh, in, in, uh, in this alternate universe where they're not smokers to see whether or not they, they also develop lung cancer. So I don't know if that was really confusing or not, Andrea, you could let me know. Um, but again, it's the counterfactual is this alternate universe scenario that we can't ever really achieve, but it's, if we were to follow one group of people over time, again, let's use the example of smokers. So we're following these smokers over time to see if they develop lung cancer. And then we're going back in time to this alternate universe and following those very same people to see, um, if they would have developed lung cancer, if they did not smoke. So, randomized controlled trials, and we're going to talk a lot about RCTs in this episode, Um, they work by creating a group that mimics the counterfactual. And they're kind of known as the the gold standard in research. Uh, And and we'll talk about more, uh, we'll talk more about that in a sec. But I just want to drive home here that it's very important how we design research, how we select our sample, and how we design our comparison group. Because Without comparability, if the two groups that we're comparing are not comparable, there are going to be all these other factors and variables that are affecting our outcome of interest. So this is really, really important. Andrea, did you want to jump in here? Sure. And I think, Jess, you you did a really great high-level summary of, of this concept. Um, and I think using the, the smokers you know, as they smoke versus if they lived in an alternate universe that where they didn't smoke is a great example. Um, a lot of 
of studies that involve humans, um, we try and control for very other variables as much as possible other than the actual experimental in question. But people are different. They're unique individuals. Um, you can control for other behaviors and things like diet and sleep patterns and stuff like that as much as you can. But genetics are different. People are not identical. And so there's obviously always going to be a limit there. And that's really why we have this concept of the counterfactual. Um, but by creating those randomized control trials and having large enough groups of people, we can negate a lot of those inherent variables and in the fact that people are just different. And if I could just jump in here, and I know next you're going to talk to us a little bit about hypotheses. Mm -hmm. um, but so you just said something really important. Obviously, individuals are different. There are things like genetics that are going to impact outcomes. And that's why this concept of the counterfactual, we can't ever truly achieve it because we can't go back in time and have the same individuals, you know, go through this alternate universe scenario. Um, but that's why when we design research, we tend to try to match on some very basic things such as age and gender and, you know, other things that are, we're trying to use a proxy for genetic similarities. And again, it's not perfect, but it's our best attempt at, uh, at creating the counterfactual scenario. Absolutely. Yeah, it's a great point, Jess. Um, and, and ultimately, a lot of that comes down to the fact that we scientific research is driven by hypotheses. And hypotheses is a specific, measurable, and answerable question. And so in order to develop an appropriate study to investigate that hypothesis, we also have to be unbiased when we conduct that study. And so we create or we state these hypotheses in a negative term. And this term is what we call the null hypothesis. And what this means is that the study will be significant if there is a difference between the test group and the control. So we're going into the study with the expectation or the hypothesis that there's not going to be a difference. And so this enables us to look at the data from kind of the highest level view with the least amount of bias. Um, and in these in these types of experiments, whether this is an experiment in a lab or it's an experiment, you know, with individuals, um, as Jess already reiterated, the treatment group and the control groups must be subjected to exactly the same conditions with the exception of the one variable that we're testing. Um, we have to monitor everything carefully and make sure that we control all of the other parameters. If we don't do that, then you have a multivariable study and you have no way to draw a conclusion about which thing you changed was actually causing the effect you might have observed. So um, ideally, subjects, uh, we don't want subjects to know, of course, whether they're in the treatment or the control group. Andrew, did you want to talk a little bit about blinding or did you want? Yeah, sure. So, so um, you know, we're talking a little bit more about this in, in the context of randomized controlled trials and, and clinical trials and things like that. Um, but when we're dealing with, you know, human research, human subjects, um, ultimately, um, blinding refers to the fact that you are now in an unknown. So you don't know. Um, you're blinded to the context of the experiment. Um, so we have single blind studies, which means that the participants, the subjects themselves, they don't know whether they're in the treatment or the control group, um, but the researchers know. So that's why it's single blinded. Only the subjects are blinded to it. But in most cases and in more typically more robust studies, not even the researchers know where the subjects lie. So they don't know whether the subjects are in the treatment group or the control group. This is called a double-blinded study, and this tends to be um, more favorable in terms of getting less biased information because now the investigators aren't even unconsciously skewed by the fact they know that there's a treatment group or a control group. They are only collecting the information that they are, have access to. And, you know, I, I've also heard of a, a third type uh, called triple blind study, um, which is uh, a scenario wherein uh, analysts who are handling the data, they also don't know right. who's, who's in which group. So that's just another another layer there. Absolutely. Um, 
So there are many different study types and every study type, including the gold standard RCT, um, they all come with strengths and weaknesses. And sometimes the research question and or availability of data dictate which study design we employ. So I wanted to take a step back and, and talk a little bit about observational versus experimental studies. So in observational studies, researchers are observing the effect of some kind of exposure. And when we say exposure, we could be referring to some risk factor, a diagnostic test, a treatment, or some other intervention without trying to change who is or isn't exposed to it. So we're just observing what is happening. We're not controlling it in any way. Um, two of the most common uh, types of observational studies that you may have heard of are cohort studies and case control studies. These are observational studies, and we'll talk a little bit more about that in, in a bit. Um, but again, the exposure, which is what, what we're studying, our independent variable of interest, is not assigned by the researcher in observational studies. And sometimes observational studies are the only way that we can explore certain questions. Um, so, for example, um, it would be unethical to design a randomized controlled trial that deliberately exposes people to a potentially harmful situation. So going back to the example I gave just before, um, a study uh, investigating the impact of smoking on, on health outcomes, we wouldn't design an RCT and, and have one group assigned to smoking because, of course, we know that smoking is harmful. That would be completely unethical and that would not be an appropriate study design. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th. Shifting gears, experimental studies are ones where researchers introduce an intervention and study the effects. So the, the researchers are controlling the exposure. Experimental studies are usually randomized, meaning the subjects are grouped by chance. And again, I keep saying the gold standard tends to be the randomized control trial. Now, Remember, I said that all of the different study types have strengths and weaknesses. So let's just talk about RCTs for, for one moment here. So RCTs are basically identical to cohort studies. We're recruiting a group of people and we're following them over time to see whether they, they do or don't develop some outcome of interest. But the difference for RCTs is that the, the exposure is randomly assigned by the investigator. So the strengths of RCTs are going to be very similar to cohort studies. So we're able to establish temporality. Um, so we know whether the exposure preceded our outcome of interest. And this is very important uh, because when compared to something like a cross-sectional study, which just basically takes a snapshot in time, uh, for those, we're not always necessarily able to know for sure whether the exposure preceded the outcome of interest. So so that's not great when we're trying to make causal arguments. Um, RCTs are really good for rare exposures because the researcher is, ex is assigning the exposure. And they're also great because they can look at multiple outcomes. 
Now, the special features that strengthen the causal inference um, in RCTs compared to cohort study, again, is this randomization. So the assignment of exposure in a random fashion prevents or reduces something called confounding and selection bias. And um, also the blinding that Andrea just described helps prevent selection bias and information bias. Um, can I dive into an example here, Andrea, or did you want to? Yeah, time? no, I think I think I think setting uh, setting the stage using an example will help our listeners get a better feel for some of the key differences between a cohort study versus a randomized controlled trial. Okay, great. So so let's say that I'm interested in the impact of a particular drug on an outcome. If I designed a non-randomized cohort study, I would recruit a group of people and I would observe their exposure. Remember, it's observational. So I would recruit these people and then I would ask them about their exposure status. I would ask them who is and who is not taking the drug of interest. I would then follow them over time and assess or measure their outcomes. Now, this type of study is very prone to bias because there are likely other factors that are impacting my outcome of interest. So, for example, there are likely differences between the groups of people who do and do not take the drug. Some obvious differences that come to mind might include socioeconomic status or the ability to pay for the drug. Um, there might also be differences in access to care. So, again, we know this one group of people has the money to afford this drug. Um, they have access to care to be able to go to the doctor doctor and get a prescription for the drug. And so socioeconomic status is likely impacting my outcome of interest, right? These variables, so again, in this example, socioeconomic status is a confounder. Just briefly here, and I'm sorry, now I'm going on a rant here, Andrea, um, but a confounding variable is a variable other than our independent variable that, you know, the main variable that we're interested in that may affect our outcome or our dependent variable. And this can lead to erroneous conclusions about the relationship between our independent and dependent variables. Now, ideally, we address some of these issues when we design our study by matching or randomizing participants, but we can also handle this during the statistical analysis um, stage of a study by controlling for these variables. But I just want to note that we can't always control for everything because we can only control for things that we have data for, right? So, um, so again, that's why an RCT is so great because in RCTs, the researchers randomly assigning participants into the experimental group or the control group. And so as the study is conducted, the only expected difference between the control and experimental groups is the outcome being studied. So by assigning the exposure in a random fashion, the distribution of all other factors associated with the disease risk other than the exposure, should be distributed between the exposed and unexposed groups such that they average out. So just last thing I'll say is that using the example above, if I recruited a group of people in my study and randomly assigned them to either being in the control group, the group that, that is not taking the drug, and the experimental group, the group that gets the drug, I'm eliminating a lot of the bias and threats to validity that my observational uh, cohort study was prone to. That is a lot, Jess. Can I try <laughs> and distill it down for our listeners as Please. a little wrap up? All Please. right. So Jess is summarizing the differences between different types of studies. And here we're talking specifically about observational studies versus experimental studies. And the example she's using is that observational studies are when we're simply observing um, a group of participants that are are doing or using a particular treatment and a group of participants that are not. And they're recruited based on whether or not they're already doing that activity or not. Um, and an example of an observational study is a cohort study where we're recruiting participants in one of these examples, um, a group that already are smokers versus a group that are not smokers. Um in contrast, an experimental study is one when we actually are introducing a variable. We're introducing a treatment or we're introducing um, some sort of um, 
behavior. And then we are actually going to monitor that through the course of experimentation. And the example here, the type of study in question would be a randomized controlled trial. And in this example, Jess used, we talked about a drug treatment where we recruit a group of people and we randomly assign one group, one half of the group to get the treatment and the other half of the group to not get the treatment. So it's out of their control and we are actually conducting this experiment on them. Does that kind of sum it up just for everybody? <laughs> I hope so. I think so. Thank you for doing that. Um, you know, I, I know as as we were about to get on this podcast, I was saying, you know, I, I've taught multiple courses on this topic and it takes a really long time yeah. for folks to wrap their minds around these concepts, but th these are really critical. So yes, thank you for driving, driving that home. Absolutely. And I think that kind of brings us into the concept of quality of evidence. And so a lot of us in the science field have this uh, internal or even external hierarchy of what evidence or what data is strong or robust versus which are weaker. Um, and Jess, do you want to quickly kind of start start us off here? Sure. I guess we should start at the at the bottom, the the weakest. Sure. Um, yeah. And I guess my little disclaimer is that yes, there is this hierarchy, but as I said before, um, it, it's not a strict one because sometimes the the you know the question that we're asking is going to dictate the study design and also availability of data. So, you know, sometimes we need to do a cohort study instead of an RCT. So, I just want to throw that out there. Absolutely. Um, but the at the bottom of the list are really these um case reports, opinion papers. Um actually, I think we said that we didn't even want to talk about opinion papers because <laughs> those shouldn't be counted as as research. Um but really case reports so we're talking about mainly, you know, clinical case reports, um, anecdotes, you know, when you have an N of one, when we're talking about one particular case, that's, that's not a strong body of evidence, right? Um, next on the list are animal trials and in vitro studies. Andrew, you could probably do a, a better <laughs> job summarizing those. I don't know if you want to do that. For sure. Sure. Yeah. So, so animal trials are in, in, in vitro studies are typically going to be uh, preclinical. So before they get to humans, and this is really where we're conducting in lab experiments, either in Petri dishes or in, in cell culture, um, or with animal models to first establish maybe a mechanism um, or, you know, the efficacy of a particular treatment or some sort of phenomenon that we want to explore in a more controlled and, and somewhat obviously safer environment before we ultimately would try and move that into um, a clinical trial or human studies. Andrew, I'm, I'm sitting here chuckling um, because I like that I turn that over to you. I actually did preclinical <laughs> research in animal trials in a past life, um, developing a, a rat model uh, on uh, methylphenidate, which is the main drug, uh, the main ingredient in, in ADHD medication. But anyway, it's just thank you. You did a, a much better job <laughs> summarizing that than I could. Um, next on the list, and I touched on this briefly, are cross-sectional studies. Um, I always say, you know, when you hear cross-sectional, you should think about a snapshot in time. So you're literally taking a snapshot of either one point in time or a defined period in time. Um, these are, these are, these are uh, flawed because it's very difficult to establish temporality and cross-sectional studies. So, you know, you're taking a snapshot and in that snapshot, people are either going to be in this exposed or unexposed group. Um, but it's hard to know, you know, were they exposed before or after this outcome of interest? So let's say, again, just using this example of smoking and, and lung cancer, if I took a snapshot in time and I put people into buckets of smokers, non-smokers, and whether they did or did not get lung cancer, I don't know for sure if it's a snapshot in time, whether or not maybe they started smoking after they developed lung cancer. Um, so that that's a major limitation to cross-sectional studies. Um, next, so case control studies are next on the list, followed by, by cohort studies. And I just, I lump those together because those are both um, very commonly used uh, observational studies. The difference, well, so basically for cohort studies, you are recruiting a cohort or a group of people and you're following them over time to see if they develop an outcome. Cohort studies are great for rare exposures. Um, and uh, alternatively, on the, on the flip side of the coin, case control studies are, are similar in that you are following a group of people over time, but the difference is that you're starting with um, your outcomes. So 
case control studies are really good for rare outcomes or rare diseases. So you would recruit a bunch of people based on their disease status and then ask them about their exposures. I hope, I don't know if I'm maybe muddying this or making it more confusing than it needs to be. So let me know if that's the case, Andrea. (laughs) It makes Um, sense to me. (laughs) Okay, well, that's good to hear. Um, Next, RCTs, again, they're basically cohort studies. You're recruiting a group of people, following them over time. But the difference in RCTs and what makes them so so strong is that uh, the researcher is randomly assigning the exposure. So that does a really great job of eliminating a lot of bias and threats to validity. And then at the top of the list are meta-analyses and systematic reviews. Basically, this is when researchers are taking a bunch of different studies and combining data to create a larger uh, larger sample. So you have, you know, we all know that the, the bigger your end, the more power you typically have in research. Um, and one thing that we noted, though, Andrea, you know, as we said, all of these studies have, have pros and cons, strengths mm-hmm. and weaknesses. Meta-analyses, you're combining the data from a bunch of different studies studies. When you do that, you're also combining the bias or any, you know, flaws that each of those individual studies had. Um, So I just wanted to note that as well. There's no such thing as perfect research. Again, we can't ever truly replicate the counterfactual scenario. But our goal in all of these study designs is to do our very best at, uh, you know, designing a proxy for that counterfactual scenario. Yeah, and I think another great point, Jess, is, um, you know, obviously, we we try and rank them in terms of robustness, and robustness is is partially, you know, the the sample size, so the N, um, we talk about a lot, obviously, larger sample sizes are going to enable us to collect more robust data, whether that's in the lab or in, in people. Um, but of course, you know, these are general rankings. You can have a very strong, you know, um, cohort study that may be, you know, slightly more robust than a poorly designed randomized control trial and so on and so forth. So it's not an all or nothing phenomenon, but these are mm-hmm. general guidelines when we think about um, the the capacity of a given study to be robust. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think one thing I want to emphasize is that Things that are not scientific evidence are things that have no data behind them. So as I said, hypothesis-driven and evidence-based is really where scientific data is is coming from. So um, unvetted anecdotes, um, any sort of anecdote really, um, things people say, oh, it's my gut feeling, that's not um, scientific evidence. Um, a sample size of, of one, a sample size that's you know not statistically significant, we'll get into statistics a little bit later. Um, and obviously, you know, unvetted or, or non-peer-reviewed sources um, generally are going to be weaker. Can I just say one thing before? I know I can't wait to hear about clinical trials. I know you're going to talk about that in a sec. Sure. But, you know, I was just looking, I'm looking at this hierarchy, um, right, that I have up on the screen in our little Google Doc. um, And I see, you know, case reports, as I said, they're on the bottom of this hierarchy. Um, Case reports... Are, it doesn't mean that they're not valuable, right? There is still utility and value. Um, typically, case reports are done by clinicians who are reporting on interesting uh, patients and cases that they saw. Um, I just want to say that in the context of research, there's not a whole lot of utility because the findings from an N of one, as you just said, are not generalizable, right? They don't have right. a lot of external validity. So it's right. not that they're not valuable at all and that we shouldn't do them. But again, in the, you know, when we're talking about um, generalizability of research, they're not so great. Sorry, I just right. wanted to make that right. But sometimes what case reports are good for is that they set the stage for a more robust study, um, you know, or a larger recruitment of you know, a given population, depending on what that case report is detailing. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Excellent. So we're going to talk a little bit about one type of, of research study, and these are clinical trials. And, and the reason we really want to chat about this today is because obviously we've been hearing a lot about COVID vaccine clinical trials and COVID treatment clinical trials. So we wanted to give everybody a bit of a better understanding of what that really entails and, and how, how that pipeline works. Um, so clinical trials are a type of research that studies new tests and treatments and evaluates their effect on human health outcomes. 
outcomes. And this can include a, a whole gamut of different types of studies. So this could be cancer treatments. This could be, you know, treatments for, um, you know, autoimmune disorders. This could be treatments for um, any sort of medical condition. And then, of course, we're talking about antiviral therapies um, as well as vaccines. So anything that's looking at some sort of new treatment in humans is going to be involved in a clinical trial. Now, before a clinical trial can begin, preclinical research, which is all the research we do in the lab, has to be done. And this typically takes years and years and years. Um, you know, we've, we've heard a lot about the acceleration of the COVID vaccine pipeline. And we've, we've really bypassed a lot of the preclinical research, which in some cases can be decades. Um, and, and we're going to talk more about that at a future episode. But ultimately, your preclinical research, so before the clinic, is done in the lab. And this involves in vitro or, um, you know, cell culture or test tube, sometimes we call it test tube testing, as well as animal testing. So typically, whatever the um, medical condition or or um, condition being tested on, there's some sort of animal model that's been established to mimic that sort of disease state um, in a model of an animal. Sometimes it's mice, sometimes it's rats, sometimes it's rabbits. Certain diseases, we have to use larger animals like, like non-human primates and sometimes dogs as well. But these are all defined by the, the research itself. And there's a lot of internal criteria and guidelines as far as which animal we choose and how many animals we have to use. But Ultimately, once this preclinical research is done um, and it and it seems to be successful in animals and in our our cell culture models, um, we obviously have to move into human testing in order to determine whether those 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 effects we observe in the lab are actually translatable into humans. And so in the United States, at least, this requires filing an investigational new drug application with the FDA. And so this, um, this has to be filed. It has to include all the data related to the treatment in, of interest, all of the data from the animal studies, all of the data from the in vitro studies, the composition of the treatment, how it's going to be delivered to the patient, how it will be absorbed and metabolized by the patient, any side effects that we observed in the lab. Um, and the FDA will review this IND, this investigational new drug application, and will either approve it or decline it. Um, I want to make the point here, 90% of treatments fail at this point. So 90% of preclinical treatments don't make it to a clinical trial. Um, once we get to the clinical trial, there are three main phases before FDA approval, and then there's a fourth phase that I'll just very quickly touch on. So we've passed the IND, we've passed the preclinical phase, so the drug is now officially approved for testing in humans. So phase one is a very small clinical phase that recruits anywhere between 20 and about 100 participants, and this first phase is geared towards testing the safety of the treatment now that we've moved into actual humans. Um, and what the optimal dosage is. So we're looking for the highest dosage that doesn't have detrimental side effects. Okay. Um, this, this typically involves paying these participants for phase run because this is so experimental in the context of humans. Um, and, and typically in the phase one, about 70% of the drugs or treatments move on. They, they successfully complete phase one and they move on to phase two. So this is a few months long, a small group of participants. Once they pass into phase two, then we're looking more at efficacy as well as side effects. So we're continuing to always look at safety. We're always looking at side effects. Phase two is also geared towards um, we've evaluated the best dosage. Now we're looking at efficacy of the treatment. So we're looking at uh, people that have the condition in question. Um, and this is typically several months to two years. And this is going to be anywhere about 100 individuals um, to several hundred, sometimes low thousands, depending on the robustness or the um, ubiquity of the treatment or the disease in question. So several months to several years here. And in phase two, we have about 33% of drugs that move on from phase one to phase two. So we're whittling down the pool of treatments as we move through the clinical trials. The next one is phase three. And we've heard a lot about phase three right now because there are several vaccine candidates that are in phase three. There are several 
antiviral treatments in phase three. And this, again, is more efficacy studies and also additional adverse effects. And, and the reason we're looking for this is because we've only tested these things in a, in a few individuals in the broad scope of things when we have billions and billions of people on the planet. Um, and so we have to evaluate whether or not um, in a larger group, a group that's more representative of you know, the population of the world, um, whether there are indeed adverse effects. So this is in involving thousands of individuals. And these typically last years. So the average is about one to four years long. Um, and this and this is, you know, this is not something that you can necessarily accelerate because you have to you have to have this treatment and then you have to observe if they develop adverse effects or if they're able to prevent the disease in question or if they're able to treat the disease in question. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Can I ask a quick question? Sure. This is so interesting. Um, so you're saying right now, most of the um, the vaccines that everyone's talking about for COVID, those are in phase three right now. Some of them are. Some um, of them. There's okay. a lot of them are still in phase one and phase two, but the ones we've been hearing about probably most in the news are the ones okay. that are in phase three. Those are where we're enrolling lots of people to now participate. Um, and that's mm-hmm. where you can volunteer to be you know, you're either getting the vac- the actual vaccine candidate or you're getting what we call a mock vaccine, right. um, which is basically they're injecting you with saline or salt mm-hmm. water. Um, so you don't know whether you got the vaccine or not. And then you go about your life. And, and eventually after over time, they're going to then see how many people in the experimental group contracted COVID versus how many people in the the control group contracted COVID and, and comparing the differences amongst those. So here, and sorry, this, this, um, I don't mean to take us into a different direction, but just a quick question about phase three. So right now, we're only doing testing on adults, adult volunteers. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, and, and there's, yeah. And, and I think that's, a, that brings up a good point. Um, you know, obviously, you know, Jess kind of touched on ethics of, of clinical trials and things like that. You know, we obviously, you know, we, we generally start with a cohort that's going to be, you know, generally viewed as healthy. Um, you know, we saw, um, I think we made a, a social media posting about the, the Russia vaccine and they had omitted females from an entire group. And they also omitted, um, the elderly, which are our high risk individuals. So, um, in a really robust clinical trial, particularly in the case of a vaccine where you have high risk groups, you obviously need to also include those in in a robust clinical trial. You answered my question. I didn't <laughs> ask it. You read my I mind. The feeling where you're going. <laughs> Okay, so what happens after phase three? Uh, it's a good question. So in phase three, that's going to last years. So the the timing is going to vary depending on what the disease is and what the treatment is, but it's on average one to four years. From there, about 25 to 30% of drugs move on to FDA review. So after phase three, they're going to go through FDA review and they're going to be approved for usage in humans. And then from there, you're going to um, move into what we call phase four. And I'll talk about that in just a moment. But I want to underscore the fact that if we talk about the clinical trial pipeline, only about 5 to 15% of clinical trial candidates make it all the way through the pipeline to FDA approval and review. So that's from phase one all the way to the end and, and FDA approval. Um, I, I use a range there because the proportion is a little bit lower for small molecule or chemical-based drugs, and it's slightly higher for biologics and immunotherapies. They're a little bit more novel. There's less of them out out there. Um, and so that tends to be a little bit higher proportion, but all told from that preclinical phase, all the way to FDA approval, only about 0.1% of all potential treatments or candidate drugs make it through the entire pipeline. Um, so we really, really winnow the field down and it goes through many, many phases of rigorous testing. Um, once that drug is in phase four, then, then you're, um, more broadly, you know, treating or you're more broadly administering it. And then we start to do some retrospective studies where we're looking at, you know, more long-term review periodically to make sure that 
all of the things we observed during the clinical trials are still true. Um, if there were to be something that cropped up like a very rare adverse effect that we didn't capture, um, then that would bring it back into FDA review and possibly um, removing it from um, the, you know, the pipeline, removing it from a treatment option. Um, so just because something does get FDA approval doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to, you know, still continue on without review. There are obviously are periodic check-ins to make sure it's still working the way it should. And there are no adverse effects or unanticipated consequences. And Andrea, I think the the cool thing is that, you know, I know this particular episode, we're, we're really focusing on study design, but mm-hmm. in a future episode, and I know you'll talk about this later, um, we are actually going to apply what we're learning here and actually talk about some of the specific um, drugs, uh, I don't know, the therapeutics and uh, antivirals and, and vaccines that are underway for COVID. So this is a really important uh, background that we all understand what the process is. Absolutely. And I just going to say one more thing about a clinical trial before we move uh, to kind of wrap up with statistical analysis. Yeah. And um, and so clinical trials are, are obviously trials, but they're only randomized controlled trials when participants are randomly allocated. So in the case of most vaccine trials, these are randomized controlled trials because people don't know whether they're receiving the vaccine itself or they're receiving the mock vaccine. Um, When participants are allocated amongst groups where they're simply receiving different treatments, it's still a clinical trial and it's still a randomized trial, but it's not a randomized controlled trial. It's just a randomized trial. Um, So again, different levels of different types of studies, even in the clinical trial arena. Um, Sorry, nope, go ahead. <laughs> I, no, I was I was go- just going to say that if um, if we didn't live across the country from each other and if we weren't in the middle of a pandemic, I would hug you right now because <laughs> it is so refreshing to to speak to um, to a microbiologist scientist who who really does understand how important statistical analysis is and research design. Um, you know, the way that we apply statistics to the data has such an impact on the interpretation of data. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and, and I want to and, yeah, and I and I want to I want to yeah. hand it over to you with the with the statement that um you know of course when when we publish studies even from in vitro or animal studies obviously we're doing statistical analysis because we have to know whether the data we're getting is different from the control group. Um and you're going to talk a little bit more about things we consider when we talk about statistical analysis, but a lot of people don't actually use statisticians or statistics experts to aid in either study design or interpretation of their data, even in biomedical research. And so we see all these studies and and some of them are just inherently flawed because they didn't have the knowledge um, to design it or interpret the data properly. I have been honestly blown away. Um, you know, I, I've taken a very close look at some of the research that's been published, as you just said, by some of the large biomedical um, companies that we all know. And I've been shocked. Um, you know, when I really take a close look at the way that they've designed their studies, they are, they are just riddled with errors. Um, there are so many things that we have to consider. Uh, and, and actually, just just one thing I'll, I'll say before I get into some of the specifics is that... Um, as I said, now I think I've said it about 10 times, you know, I've taught coursework in in this field. And I know that anytime we talk about this, it seems that folks are always so wrapped up in, you know, the actual statistical test, you know, you know, regression analysis or chi-square, whatever it might be. That's actually not the difficult part of research, because really, it's the the type of variables that we're um, that that we're analyzing, that's going to dictate the statistical tests that we use. It's actually everything that happens before that point that is so important. I always tell people, don't focus so much on the um, the analytical approach. Focus more on the research design. It mm-hmm. all starts with the groups that you're comparing and how well the study has been designed. Um, that being said, certainly uh, we have to consider things like sample size. Um, you know, Andrea, I know we were giving an example of a study that's been making its rounds on social media. They're comparing two groups, but they fail to mention that 
um, the the control group has something like you know 500 people, and then you're looking at the um, the experimental group or the the I don't know was it an experimental study? I can't even remember right now, Andrea. But the comparison group has you know 50 people. Right. Um, so we you know we we need to be mindful of how the groups and the data points are related to each other. How are the data distributed? Are they distributed normally or not? Um, and really, my whole shtick is comparability. Mm-hmm. If you're comparing two groups, that's great. If you even if you find significant findings, fantastic. But if I take a look at the way that your study was designed and the two groups that you're comparing or multiple groups that you're comparing are not comparable, it doesn't matter what results you have because <laughs> it's like you're comparing apples to oranges. Yeah, absolutely. So I, should we get it? I, I, I can't remember if we decided to get into the specifics of a study. Are we saving that for a future episode? Yeah, and- maybe we'll save it from future episode. I think I think a couple other things worth mentioning. You know, obviously, Jess has touched on that. You know, it, obviously, you need your groups to be comparable to each other. Um, obviously, sometimes, you know, we have to make sure that... Um, you know, we're, we're actually looking at an appropriate measurement, um, that we have an appropriate control group, um, that we have to control for all of these things for, um, the study design. And if we're doing a randomized control trial, we have to talk about how those participants were randomized. A lot of other things go into designing an appropriate study, um, even before you start collecting the data. And then obviously once you collect that data, you have to make sure that again, the, the right statistics are applied, the, the right types of error are, are interpreted, um, so that ultimately when you actually are drawing a conclusion or, or an interpretation from that data, it's appropriate with both the study design and with the, the data that you collected. Can I just say one, one last thing? I'm so sorry. (laughs) I don't want you to take it home for us. Um, but the reason that sample size is so important, and this is something, you know, I, we could talk about this for hours and hours and hours, and, and I think we should go into more detail in the future, but sample size is so important because we do have to control for variables. And every time you control for something, and I'm waving my hands wildly now, and I'd be showing you things on a, on a whiteboard if, if we had one to present right now, is that when you're controlling for something, you're cutting the data, right? Mm-hmm. You're, you're, you're cutting the data and you're controlling for lots of different types of variables. And, and in order to do that and, uh, and also preserve statistical power, you need a large enough sample to be able to properly control for these variables. So I'm sorry, I don't know if that was too in the weeds, but I, I, I just wanted to comment um, that that that's another reason why we we are we always look at how large of a sample it is. The larger the study, the better. It just allows us to account for other variables um, that might be affecting our outcome of interest. So yeah, Jess, I think I think that's a, a great point to kind of end on. Um, I think you know a lot of people don't. Um, you know, we we've seen some of this in real time where we talk about, you know, oh, favorable outcomes in this phase two trial and and they're only looking at 80 people. Um, you know, that's not representative enough, especially when you're trying to control for these variables um, to really interpret how this treatment or vaccine or whatever the case happens to be is going to behave in a broader swath of the population. Um, and that's true even even in the lab. We even in in cell culture where we have essentially identical conditions and identical cells, we do many replicates. We we do uh, biological replicates. We do technical replicates because you have to ensure that if something goes awry or if you have a, an unforeseeable consequence or, you know, like a person withdraws from a study or we have a sample that gets contaminated or whatever the case is, that you have enough samples still left to actually still make an interpretation of that data. That was so well said. And Andrea, on that note, do you want to take us home? Sure. So thanks for joining us today. We hoped you learned a thing or two. Um, as you can tell, we're we're both biostatistics nerds and um, really underscore the value of study design. And in our next episode, we will actually apply what we discussed today in the context of research studies to the current ongoing research trials for COVID-19 treatments and vaccine candidates. Catch you next time on the pod, your trusted source for no-nonsense, just science.